It's a new week in world soccer. The international break is over and club football is set to resume this weekend. You are listening to the Footy Talks podcast where we will preview what promises to be a very hectic few weeks of soccer both domestically and abroad. My name is Mitchell Tierney, MLS editor here at Homestand Sports and ahead on the show we will be looking back at the international break that was and what potentially it could tell us about this summer's World Cup. We will also look ahead to the UEFA Champions League quarterfinals, which are taking place in less than a week, as well as our crazy soccer story of the week. To help me break all this down and more, I've enlisted the talents of Ollie Platt of the TFC Report and Pro Soccer USA. Ollie, thanks for being the first ever reoccurring guest on the Footy Talks podcast. <laughs> no worries. Thanks for inviting me back. Uh, no problem. Let's uh, let's kick things off with our Toronto FC segment presented by SB Nation's Waking the Red. Uh, a very busy few weeks for Toronto FC ahead, both in MLS action and the Champions League. Let's start with the regular season where Toronto FC... They play Real Salt Lake tomorrow, 8 at BMO Field. Um, it's been not the best start, obviously, to the MLS season for Toronto FC. Uh, but they don't seem overly worried from everything I've heard so far. Um, you know, did this international break come at a good time? And what's what's the feeling around the camp as, as you know, things develop here? Um, I, I think yes and no. Um, I think obviously it gives them some time to work on certain things that haven't worked so far this season. So, you know, integrating new signings. I, I, I still think there's a bit of fitness work to do with, with players like Van Der Weel and, and Akeche. Um So hopefully they'll come out looking a little bit sharper and, and quicker and stronger um, than perhaps they have through through the season so far. But I think at the same time, you know, they don't like to dwell on defeats for too long. Um, you know, they like to, to get back on the field and respond. And, and obviously they haven't had the opportunity to do that. So, you know, they need to kind of uh, bring the disappointment of that Montreal game back to the forefront of their minds and, and try and respond in the right way. Um, it, it's tough. It's tough not to be looking ahead already to Tuesday in Club America. Um, but they certainly won't obviously want to start the season 0-3. And, and I think, you know losing the first two games it obviously it's not the end of the world um and you know I spoke to Bill Manning last week and he said he'd happily go 0 and 4 if it meant winning the Champions League and he thinks that they're going to be the best team in MLS uh, the final 30 games of the season so he's not concerned and I don't think many of them are uh but the players I think have have taken a little bit of a hit just you know coming slowly out the blocks being bottom of the Eastern Conference doesn't feel particularly good for this team it's not obviously not used to it so I think they'll be pretty keen to get three points on the board tomorrow. Yeah, this is a team that certainly has shown its ability to bounce back uh, after tough results in in the past, especially the past few seasons. One of the things, I mean, we've seen, you know, the Reds have had all kinds of soccer played so far, and both domestically and in the Champions League, and very short turnover between these couple of matches obviously they're getting a game uh next saturday against dc united moved which will help in this regard but have you been at all surprised with how little we've seen the depth from this red squad so far because i mean there's definitely two schools of thinking on this one being you want to get your you know a team ready for the season and especially when they've got these big competitions right off the bat you want to get them as much game time as possible and you also want to you know give players like Edgar Akeche who you want to be in that a team potentially um, at some point down the road you want to give them minutes with the players they will be playing with but at the same time, you almost wonder if, if the Reds would be doing better. And, and you said, you know, MLS is not their priority. But if they would be doing a little better in MLS, if they gave some of the hungry players like Jay Chapman and Nico Hasler more minutes. Yeah, it's, it's a good question for sure. Like, I, I think it's true that there are certain players who haven't really featured very much who would probably give you a little bit more appetite for these games. I, I think the tricky thing is, is that, you know, as you alluded to at the start there, they're trying to get 
the team ready for these Champions League games and they're trying to integrate a Kecce and Van der Weel with with players that they're actually going to be playing with if they are ready to go for you know potentially a Champions League final or, or whatever it is and I think you know you look at the Columbus game in particular and, and a few days before Tigres that was a really valuable loss I think in, in a way because it, it really taught them about where they were in, in certain facets of the game and, and I think probably impacted the way they set up against Tigres and then got that win uh, a few days afterwards. So, you know, the Montreal game a little bit less so, I think, because, you know, they kind of got that first Champions League win under their belt and, and they'd hit a bit of a rhythm. But at the same time, they didn't have a game immediately afterwards. You know, they had the international break, so they possibly weren't so worried about putting all their, their big players out there. Um, so I think... You know, I, I think it definitely would have been nice to see Hamilton and Chapman and, and Hasler and some guys like that more than we have. Um, I, I think it's been a little bit tricky to do so. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how that kind of changes over the summer. Because, you know, if they're not playing now and it doesn't look like they are going to play much now for the next month or two. If, if they don't play much in the summer, then, you know, what's left of their season, you know? Because Greg Vanny always likes to lock down his, his lineups come kind of you know, August, September in preparation for the playoffs. So, you know, they need a chance sooner rather than later or else you start to think about, you know, would they be better off? Can they set up a loan or something for for some of these guys, particularly the young ones? Yeah, that's definitely an interesting possibility to look at. Um, Now, looking at um, these three games, well, they've played four games against MLS opposition so far in all competitions, but the past three no goals have been scored, um, and that that's definitely a bit concerning in terms of, you know, this team and all the firepower they have. Um, especially against Montreal, it looked like things, like they'd figured out Toronto FC a little bit almost. They sat back, they invited Toronto's pressure. Now there's a certain player that Toronto's been missing who um, would have made a big difference in that game. Yeah. Um, but do you think perhaps that the teams have started to figure out Toronto FC a little bit? And I, I don't doubt Toronto FC's ability to adapt. They've shown that um, over the past couple of seasons in, in several different iterations that have that have caught teams off guard, most famously, of course, in that MLS Cup final where they played the 4-4-2 diamond and Seattle just didn't know what hit them. But uh, at this point in the season, is that something that, that concerns you at all? Um, I don't think I'm concerned that they've been figured out, but I, I think obviously they're not doing the things that they need to do, um, you know, to really pose a, a threat to the opposition. You know, they're not moving the ball quickly enough. They're not, um, they're not going forwards directly enough. You know, with enough intensity, there's too much passive possession play, um, and and I don't think it's so much a case of them being figured out. I think they could play any formation or system in the world, and if they just pass the ball around in front of their defense like they did in the Montreal game. They're going to get killed on the break repeatedly, um, and obviously Vasquez is a huge part of that. You know that he—that's what he was signed for was to avoid the issue of, of teams like Seattle in the final um, coming to BMO Field or, or wherever and just bunkering um, and, and you know setting up to play on the counter attack. And and there's no doubt that they don't really have a player like Vasquez uh, anywhere else on the roster until Akeche kind of gets up to speed, maybe. Uh, and so they've definitely missed him in that regard because I think he sets the tempo for them in terms of getting the ball into the final third. Um, so I, I, I don't think they've been figured out. I, I think there are things that, you know, they need to be able to do well consistently in games where teams are going to sit back against them and, and they just haven't done them so far. And, you know, there's a combination of things that you could put that down to. Vasquez is one. The importance of the games relative to the, to the Champions League is another uh, some of the lineup decisions that have been made to integrate the new players, I don't think have really, you know, found the right balance in, in terms of the lineup as a whole. So there's a few things going on there, uh, and it'll be interesting to see what kind of team we see tomorrow night with obviously Club America looming uh, four days away. And you mentioned integrating those new players. Now coming off this international break, we've had a bit of time to reflect, and it's almost a natural time to look back at these first few games of the season and acknowledging that the sample size has been small we'll call this almost our first impression of the of the first three or of the uh three big toronto fc off-season signings and let's start with with the one who in terms of his name and in terms of of obviously the money they spent on him um otherwise uh 
he's definitely not the biggest of the three, but Auro, for me, has made the biggest impression so far in terms of what he's been able to bring to this team. I mean, the, one of the biggest moments of the season so far almost was when Justin Morrow went down against Tigris and uh, in, in that away leg, and Auro was able to come on on his offside. And the first thing he did was just cause havoc down, down that left side, and it was almost, I feel like, for Toronto FC, a moment... Um, where they were, they were able to take a breath and be like, all right, we'll be okay, even though we don't have one of our tried-and-true players. Yeah, I agree. And he, he's been like, like, it's hard to fault him, really. It's hard to offer much critique of, of the way he's played. Like, he looks like when he's playing at right back uh, in his preferred position, he could be a really good player uh, and potentially challenge Van der Weel for that starting spot. And then on top of that, you've got a guy who can come in at left back, who can come in in a wide midfield position, who could looks like he can play in a, a back four or a back five. Um, you know, he's so versatile, and he, he just looks like you know a, a solution to a lot of problems, but also you know not just a utility guy, a really good player in in his own right. And it, yeah, again, it's, it's difficult to find too much to say about him really because he just looks like an excellent signing and and someone who's you know adapted remarkably quickly. Yeah, and as much as sometimes you wonder about um, how the salary cap really even applies to Toronto FC with some of the moves they make, uh, players like Aro are so important considering um, what what they can bring in terms of their tactical flexibility and, and filling multiple positions for one player's salary. Now, one player who has struggled a little bit more, I mean, he's he's in a definitely a tougher position as Edgar Akeche is a player who... Toronto FC almost expects to be able to play through to link up with the attacking two, and that hasn't necessarily happened so far. I wonder if he's going through a little bit of Armando Cooper syndrome, where Toronto FC is a team that likes to move the ball very quickly and decisively, and um, you know him being new to the team and not necessarily knowing the tendencies of a guy like Josie Altidore or Sebastian Giovinco or even the wingbacks kind of might hurt him a little bit. What are your thoughts on Edgar Akeche and what he's done so far with this team? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think, you know, you look at Akeche, has been playing on the right side of the pitch, you know, the right side of the midfield three. Um, and one of the interesting things about that, I think, is that Vasquez obviously played on the, to the left of, of Marky Delgado, and, and he had Justin Morrow bombing down that left flank every game and, and they struck up a really good understanding of you know when Morrow was going to go when he was potentially going to come inside and, and they, you know that overlapping was really a threat for Toronto FC and then you had Vasquez combining with Juvinko as well who also likes to, to drift out to that left hand side so there were a lot of kind of combinations that worked there um, with the catcher on the right that hasn't really happened yet uh, he hasn't really developed a, a connection with anyone yet and some of that I don't think is his fault. Like I, I think, for example, you compare Morrow and Vanderweel, and and obviously the hope is that Vanderweel will become a very aggressive attacking player, but he's just not there yet, and he's not overlapping a whole ton. He's not attacking the penalty area very much, um, and and so that kind of affects the the balance of things on the right because I think you've got too many players over there right now, who who like to have the ball and like to get in possession, um, but don't necessarily make the off the ball runs and and offer that kind of movement that stretches teams and moves them around. And, you know, the other thing in that regard is that Akechi is coming in for Marky Delgado, who who is really good at that stuff, you know, who doesn't always need the ball at his feet uh, to impact the game. So I, th- I think they've got to kind of figure out that balance um, a little bit. And, you know, it's kind of interesting that Akechi is playing on that right-hand side as a left-footed player. Like, I guess Vasquez does the same on the left, and we don't really make anything of it when they're right-footed, but... It's been slightly unusual to see Akeche playing in the right half of the field and, and kind of having to come inside all the time rather than maybe being able to, to stretch out to the flank a little bit. So there's, I think, a few, um, you know, some of it's Akeche just settling in and growing in confidence and building those relationships. And some of it, I think, is, again, what the the, the value of the Columbus game and the Montreal game has been is that they're working out a few kinks and, and they're starting to figure out what works and what doesn't. And hopefully that will, you know, that eventually it will click. And you mentioned the highest profile signing Toronto FC made this offseason, Greg mm. Vanderveel, and his struggles getting forward so far. I think we saw glimpses against Montreal of 
of him being able to to push the pace up that side, uh, that right side a little bit better. But he's definitely, I, I almost wonder, I mean, defensively he's been solid, but at the same time, so was Stephen Betashore, um, and yeah. he understood the system a little bit better, it seemed. So Toronto FC really did bring him in um, to be able to push the pace on that right side as well. And I almost wonder if, if this is because, you know, he's played at such a high level and with clubs like PSG and, and Ajax where maybe he couldn't get up that far forward because there were these offensive talents he was playing against in that league that would absolutely burn him if he tried to do something like that. Now, I don't think those same offensive talents necessarily exist in MLS or at least you see them a little bit more rarely. Um, mm-hmm. So do you think this is just an adjustment thing or... Do you think this is going to take him a little bit longer to figure out maybe um, the the I guess leeway he has to move forward in this system? Yeah, no, I definitely think that's a big part of it. And like I, I wrote an article about this and and about how kind of comparing Mora and Vanderweel a little bit and some of the stuff Mora does, it's it's like forward play. You know, it's it's not even midfield stuff. Um, it's you know kind of posting up on the edge of the area and spinning and turning and you know, little one-twos around the edge of the box with the strikers, and it's just not really a natural thing for a fullback. Um, and I think Van der Weel has all the ability to, you know, I, I'm not going to say that he's going to score goals like Mauro does, because I think that's the best-case scenario, but I, I think he certainly has the qualities to do some of the things Mauro does well, and, and to be that kind of attacking threat. And I, I do think it is partially a mentality thing. I think some of it is physical, and I think you can see that he's still building up his his confidence in terms of his stamina and so on to to be raiding up and down the flank all game um but i think some of it is is definitely psychological that he he just tends to play a little bit of a safer game he doesn't want to miss any assignments behind him um and and he has been very clean defensively i have to say through some difficult games in in the champions league and and in mls so I, I think maybe there's a little bit of him trying to get that side of the game down and make sure that he's not responsible for any glaring errors um, early on. And then, you know, the hope will be that as his fitness gets up and as his confidence gets up, he can maybe start to to attack in, in the opposition half a little bit more. But as you say, if they wanted a solid defender, they could have kept Stephen Bateshaw around. You know, um, they've spent a lot of money on Van der Weel to get, to get a bit more than that. And, and that's what he'll be judged on at the end. And Toronto FC this weekend, of course, playing Real Salt Lake. You had a great piece on the TFC report uh, this morning about kind of how the Reds have modeled themselves after Real Salt Lake. Of course, Bill Manning coming from Real Salt Lake and how um, he found out about, you know, how to have success in MLS through that process and tried to replicate it and evidently successfully replicated it so far with Toronto FC. Um, It's since he left Real Salt Lake has has gone through a bit of a struggle but now um, they're looking like a much better side what what challenges do you think Real Salt Lake will present tomorrow for Toronto FC yeah so I I think around the time Manning left there'd been a change in ownership and I think the new owner basically felt that the way they were spending couldn't really last much longer and so they kind of tightened the the belt a little bit and and that resulted in you know Manning leaving, Garth Lagoy leaving, Jason Christ leaving, uh, and a little bit of a downturn in results. But I, I think they've started to figure it out a bit more over the past year. Um, you know, they brought in some talented young players like Albert Rusnak. It didn't work to begin with with Jeff Kassar, and so they switched to Mike Pecky. And and now I think they have they're starting to get an identity back again, and and they're getting an identity as a counter-attacking team. You know, a team that has a lot of speed with. Your Platter and, and Luis Silva and players like this in attack um, and you know a, a defence with Justin Glad who I think is one of the best young players in MLS and, and definitely the best young defender in MLS um, he's kind of shielded by by Carl Beckerman and a two man midfield and then they'll try and spring forward on the counter attack so it's not uh, that unlike the impact under uh, Mauro Biello you know with, with some talent in the attacking midfield band and and a team that's going to, especially on the road, defend deep and, and, and try and spring counterattacks. So that's going to be a challenge for TFC. And it'll be the same thing as it was in Montreal. If they don't move the ball quickly enough, if they don't have the right intensity in, in possession, if they're not making the right runs to, to get behind the defence and open up space, they'll get picked off. So they, they have to do those things much better. 
Now let's move on to what is definitely the bigger game or the game that Toronto FC have circled on their calendar, and that is April 3rd next Tuesday against Club America at BMO Field. Now, doing some reading on on Club America, and evidently I haven't seen that much in terms of their Liga MX games and and you know any of their competitions but from the sounds of things they're a much more aggressive side than Tigris offensively now I think we saw Tigris they sat back a lot and I was kind of surprised almost by how much they sat back in terms of their midfield and defense and just kind of let their front three um, show their quality and and make the difference offensively Um, do you think it might help or hurt Toronto FC to play a more aggressive Club America side who um, will will attack Toronto FC more, but potentially might leave a little bit more space in behind. Yeah, well, that's the tough question. Is that obviously there is the potential for them to to be able to counterattack a little bit more and and find space um, behind the defense, as you said. Tigres were kind of they have such so much talent up front that they they basically left you know three or four players back at all times. They had a holding midfielder. They didn't push their fullbacks up too much, um, and they just let. You know, they. Do, I think they back themselves that if they get two or three chances, they they're gonna be they're gonna be taking them with a pretty good uh, hit rate, and and they like to win games that way. Club America, it seems like, will be a bit more of a of a unit. You know, attacking and defending as a unit, um, and so it'd be interesting. I, I think it could go both ways. I think, you know, if if Club America really play cohesively and and really try and take the game to Toronto FC and do that well. Um, that is going to be a more difficult challenge potentially than, than Tigres posed. Uh, if if there's kind of breakdowns here and there that, that TFC can exploit, then they'll like that more than the, the Tigres challenge because they'll have more opportunities to play. And, you know, that second leg in, in Monterey, it was a real slog for players like Jovinko and, and Altador to carve anything out. Um, so I think the forwards will probably like it. Um, I, th- I think the midfielders and, and the defence, you know, might have an even more challenging time than they did against Tigres. And speaking of Tigris, you know, Toronto FC will definitely take a lot of confidence from that win over two legs. Uh, Didn't go so great for them down in Mexico, but they were able to get the job done. What lessons do you think they can take from that Tigris tie that they can then apply to uh, this Club America side? Um, I I think they probably will have learned how how much these ties rest on individual moments. Um, And they did a good job of that. You know, they... They took their chances when they came. By and large, they had a couple of you know real heroic desperation plays in in their own box. Obviously, Chris Mavinga's goal line block being the the one that stands out. And I think you know you've, you've got to know, and, and this team does know because they have a lot of playoff experience uh, that that these games are going to swing back and forth, and you're going to have periods where you're on top and and you have a chance to capitalize, and you're going to have periods where you have to. Um, you know, you have to absorb some pressure and there's not a lot you can really do to get out of it and you just have to bunker in. And, you know, it really comes down to which team makes the most of, of their good moments and copes the best in, in their bad ones. And TFC have done a good job of that. And, and again, they, they they have a lot of experience of doing that, albeit at a lower level. So I think it'll be more of the same, really. Let's move on now um, to the international break. Um, the past week obviously a couple weeks was spent um you know watching international soccer and definitely for canadians it was an interesting one with john herdman taking the reins of the canadian men's national team for the first time he got a win uh one nothing against new zealand in a friendly let's not read into that too much they (laughs) are ranked 120th in the world and they were missing a lot of their key pieces uh as was canada evidently but um, this was a match between two sides kind of turning over their program but you know a win is is a win to start for John Herdman and I think more interesting than that would be um, what has come out of this camp and what has come out since about John Herdman because um, you know he's really the he's really the focus of of most of Canada's interest Canada soccer fans interest right now Uh, what of interest for you came out of this camp in terms of John Herdman and um, how he was able to to operate in his first camp. Well, I think it sounds like that the structure is going to be a lot better. You know, I think he's very deliberate about how he works and how he organizes things. 
Um, you know, he's a very good communicator, obviously, and I think the players appreciate that and like that. And th- there's just a lot more order to what's happening. You know, there's there's a lot more kind of um, deliberation over how he's working with the MLS clubs. I think there's a lot more deliberation over how he's communicating with the players and, and getting their views. And, and, and I just think he's probably someone who's going to be a bit better than Octavio Zambrano was at kind of unifying the whole program uh, and giving it, you know, both an identity on, on the playing side and then the structure on the kind of organizational side. And, you know, hearing John Molinaro had a, had a good piece for, for Sportsnet with Azorio and, and Piet and a couple of other players who seem pretty impressed and pretty happy uh, with the way things are going. And, and again, just having that kind of, you know, that clear messaging that, that Herdman provides. Now, obviously, the challenge is going to be, you know, you can do all of that stuff very well, but if it's not backed up in terms of, you know, uh, tactical aptitude, um, getting the right mix of players together, you know, complementary players that, that gel together as a team, uh, you know, developing players at the youth level. That obviously the the technical work has has got to then be up to par, or else the the structural and and, and organisational stuff doesn't really matter. Um, but I think in terms of getting the pieces into place and and getting everyone on the, on the same page, he seems to be uh, he seems to have made a good start. And you mentioned one of the players who really seems to have bought in is Jonathan Osorio, and why wouldn't he? I mean, he was yeah. left to the periphery by Benito Floro, um, and even Octavio Zambrano. I mean, Octavio Zambrano called him up, but he wasn't necessarily used all that often. Herdman seems like he's going to make Osorio a very, you know, integral piece of this team he played uh, at that 10 position for Canada really controlled the midfield in that match against New Zealand what do you make of Jonathan Osorio and and that camp and what it might mean for him and his national team future yeah he's just been waiting for a chance you know and and I think I think there was definitely work to do in Osorio's game and and obviously Greg Vanny has been focused in on that on the past year or two and I think Sam Brano to be fair to him he really did take an interest in Osorio as a player, I think. Uh, and I think he did try and help him in terms of his development and how he needed to progress as a player. And I think that was part of, you know, why he came on strong uh, towards the end of last season. But I also think, you know, Osorio said it himself that he, he was pretty annoyed that he didn't play in the Gold Cup. You know, he, he came on for one half or, you know, as a second half substitute in one game. And, and he looked really good. And then that was it. Uh, and that bothered him. And I think that was part of, the the motivation that spurred him on to finish the season so well and he again he's just looking for an opportunity I think he, he's playing as well as he ever has done um, and I think he's a guy who you know you get him on side and you get him reading off the same hymn sheet early on and and he'll he'll repay you and it was the national team debut for Liam Miller the 18 year old playing in the Liverpool youth system. Had a really solid game. I mean, he, he didn't show yeah. any fear, which is something, I mean, especially with Canadian attackers, you always kind of almost expect for their first couple of games, they kind of struggle to, to you know, balance themselves against this competition. But for a young man, he really showed that he's capable at this level and a promising start. Obviously, you don't want to heap too much pressure. Um, this is... This is a program that's really been looking for a player to be its savior for a long time, and it hasn't necessarily happened. A lot of young players have have been overtly hyped at a young age, uh, but Liam Miller looks to be one that might actually live up to that hype. Um, What were your thoughts on his debut for the Canadian team? Yeah, it was good. He was very bright, and you know one of the interesting things is that Herdman never hesitated to put a teenager in with the women's side um you know you look from jesse fleming and then obviously more recently jordan hoitema you know they go straight in at 16 or, or whatever you know whenever he thinks that they can add something to the team and and obviously on the men's side in international football generally it's a little bit different that players tend not to come up until later uh, and maybe you know physically it's you know it's a very different game obviously to the youth level and it can be more challenging for for players in some ways to come up to the senior team, but so, so it'll be interesting to see how you know how willing he is uh, to kind of throw the young kids in there that obviously like Miller have the talent and have potential but aren't really playing in the senior game yet. And you know Alfonso Davies kind of stands on his own because he's already playing uh, 
senior football and, and he already has you know a great physical presence about him but beyond that you know guys like Muller it'll be interesting to see how quickly they can contribute or how quickly Herdman thinks they can contribute anyway now surprise here Canada won't be at this summer's World Cup um, <laughs> but a number of other teams will be and we're going to look now quickly at some of the favorites um, coming out of this international window and there's no better place to start, I don't think, than the defending champions, Germany. And, you know, they they drew 1-1 with Spain and lost 1-0 to Brazil. Now that was more of an experimental side for them. You don't want to read too much into friendlies as well. This is definitely still a team that, that is a favorite, though, for me. And the one thing I like for them going into this competition is they do have more of a defined central attacker. Um, they have guys like Timo Werner and uh, even, you know, Muller hasn't been up to his usual standards the past couple of years, but this is a World Cup year and he scored a fantastic goal against Spain and international football, especially World Cup football, really seems to be his thing. So what do you make of, of Germany and their chances of winning back-to-back World Cups? Yeah, they've obviously got a chance. Um, you know, the thing about Germany and and it was the same thing with Spain when they won, uh, you know, when they were dominating the World Cup and the European Championship, is that for all the attacking talent they have, they concede very few goals. And, and that is key at these tournaments, which, you know, unfortunately for, for the viewers have been a little bit tight and cagey. Um, so th- they have the talent to win it. They have kind of the, the identity and the cohesion as a team to win it. Um, having a goal scorer would, would certainly help. And I think that's why Mario Gomez is, is still part of things and still getting chances to to be that guy um, what is very good news for them and I think we'll probably touch on later on is that Bayern Munich have, have figured it out and obviously there's a few players in, in that team that are going to be very important to them yeah absolutely um, and the team evidently they they lost to during this international window was Brazil. Now, I don't think anyone is suggesting this is a full measure of revenge for uh, what Germany did to them four years ago on home soil, but it was at least a good indication from this Brazil team that, yes, we can beat a German side. Um, They did so without Neymar as well. A lot of attacking talent, certainly on the Brazil side. They played some really nice football during this international window, but... um, you know, do you consider them to be a potential favorite for this tournament, or are they, you know, are they still behind the the Germanys and and the Spains, perhaps? I think I would still have them behind those two. I I think they're up there. You know, the the tough thing to tell with them, they've been really good in qualifying and and uh, you know, basically everywhere since since Tite took over. But the thing for me with with Brazil is they still don't have the midfield that some of the top European teams do. Um, obviously Paulinho has, has really come along well and, and has improved massively as a player and Fernandinho has been crucial for Manchester City as well so they have midfielders that are playing very well but they don't really have the the players who can control games you know you look at Tony Kroos or Iniesta you know David Silva guys like this I, I don't think they have that those players who can really get the, their foot on the ball and control games like some of the top European teams do Um so it's can they find ways to to cope with that and to get around that uh, and still be effective defensively they're good the, the forwards are obviously world class as good as you'll find anywhere um, so it's just that midfield area that, that I think is so important at major tournaments and so important defensively to be able to you know slow the game down and, and get control um, and, and that will be the challenge for them I think and the Euro runners-up, France. Now, they had a difficult international window. They beat Russia, but it wasn't overtly convincing, especially considering, I think, this window we found out that the, the hosts might not be uh, such a great team uh, come yeah. this summer. But And then they lost to Colombia, a come-from-behind loss, where early on they looked fantastic, and then things just kind of unraveled from there. I wouldn't read too much into these friendlies, obviously, but... The one concern I would have with France is that, you know, guys like Paul Pogba aren't playing much right now. And, you know, there seems to almost be, um, you know, a bit of an issue in team cohesion going into this World Cup this summer. Yeah, I I don't like their their chances, to be honest. Like, there's all the talent there to win. They arguably have the best 
11 on paper that you can find in the world. I, I don't rate Didier Deschamps as a coach. I think he still gets too many things wrong. I, I think they have too many grenades in their team that, that could undermine them. Obviously, <laughs> what's happening with Pogba at Man United is one of them. No, a French national team? Really? <laughs> <laughs> well, exa- exactly. You know, and I don't know. I, I could see that going wrong. But equally, they could be fantastic and win it. You know, is I think it will be. I, don't, I I guess they went to the finals of the Euros, and that was fairly mundane and dull. Um, so may, maybe they'll find a way to kind of plow through. But I, I kind of see it at, at two extremes to them. Either they'll be great, or they'll be one of the, the big disappointments. And the, the team for me that I might actually put as my favorite going into this competition is Spain. I, I know they. Uh, I might be a little biased because evidently they had that big game against Argentina and it wasn't even Argentina's top side, but they absolutely slapped them. Um, this is a team with, it's almost like a transition team where, you know, the, um, the past couple of years they've been a little older and things didn't go necessarily as well with that older side, but now they've integrated guys like Isco, uh, Tiago Alcantara, who uh, really run that midfield very well. Uh, the one concern for them, perhaps, is is up front, where you know uh, Morata hasn't had a, the season he was expected to. Diego Costa didn't play the first half of the year. Now that might help because uh, you know he, he might be a little more rested. Um, what do you make of Spain's chances to get back to the helm of world football? Um, yeah, it's a tough one to call though. They look really good at the minute, and they have done for a while now. Uh, and you wonder if like the mix could be right there because they still have some veterans like Sergio Ramos and, and PK and Iniesta and so on. Um, and then you have kind of an influx of young talent with Asensio and, and a little bit older, but you've got Isco who's been fantastic. Um, you know, Thiago is, is playing as well as he ever has over the last year or two, I think. So you, maybe the pieces will kind of blend together. What, what's interesting with them, I think, is that you know, the Spanish title race is, is pretty much done. Um, you've got players, as you mentioned, Costa hasn't played half the year. Isco doesn't play every week for Real Madrid. Barcelona have started kind of managing Iniesta pretty carefully. Mm. Uh, Asensio doesn't start all the time for Real Madrid. So maybe they'll have a little bit of freshness, which which could give them an edge um, come the summer. Because some of their players, I, I don't think, will be as heavily worked through the uh, domestic club season uh, as some of their rivals. Now, the final team I wanted to touch on, and they've been called a dark horse at the past few tournaments, but once you've been a dark horse for, for a couple tournaments straight, and especially with the roster they have now, um, you know, be- this is Belgium's time to shine. This is their golden generation. And a lot of things are going well for them right now in terms of players on form. You know, you've got Kevin De Bruyne, who's playing fantastically. Uh, Hazard's had a pretty good season, obviously. Uh, Dries Mertens, guys like that. Lukaku, it's been up and down, but he he had a very good game against Saudi Arabia, who evidently aren't the toughest opponent, but um, potentially a confidence builder for the Belgian national team there. Can you see this team getting over the final hurdle? Because they have all that talent, but... At the same time, they still haven't been able to to do anything big at any of these recent competitions. Yeah, I, I think um, again, it's kind of like Brazil. I think with them, it's about finding the right balance and compensating for some of their weaknesses. Um, you know, they have a ton of midfield talent. They have good centre backs as well. Um, what they haven't had is full backs, apart from maybe Moynier at PSG. So they've been playing, you know. Tongans had to play out at left back at times and, mm. and stuff like that and then they haven't really had a striker who scored um, obviously they have the potential talent with guys like Lukaku and, and Batshawi and, and so on but no one's really stepped up for them um, at, at the big tournaments yet and in the big games so those are the two kind of areas that they're going to have to figure something out I think obviously as you say they they have the talent and they have England's lined up as a nice little warm up for them to, to get some <laughs> a confidence boosting win so maybe that will help them along yeah definitely a lot of storylines to watch as we move towards the summer and uh, you know a lot of players will be hopefully back and healthy at that time that will be boosting all of the squads we've talked about but let's move on to more currently, that being our game of the week. Uh, each week on the show, we take a look at a game that we think listeners should make sure to watch in the upcoming week. And this week, we've picked 
the LA Derby, the first ever LA Derby, LAFC versus LA Galaxy. Now this one's going to be interesting because of course, you know, you look at the almost the culture surrounding it. LA Galaxy have been the standard in this league for so many years and now, you know, you've LAFC coming in and stealing a lot of their thunder in terms of um, what they've done with the branding and, and some of the players they've been able to bring in. And uh, they've obviously gone undefeated to start the season. Now, have they necessarily warranted that that record so far? Um, who knows? But now, of course, LA Galaxy pulling back a little bit in an interesting way and bringing in Zlatan Ibrahimovic. Now, it doesn't sound like he's going to play this weekend, but he will be involved soon. Um, haven't actually had a chance with all the, the happenings um, going on in the soccer world to, to talk about the Zlatan signing on this show yet, Oli. Um, so what do you make of this signing? I mean, it's definitely an an older school MLS signing, but at the same time, it, it's Latan and it's a player who is so internationally recognized. And I mean, before his injury, at least still had a lot of quality. Yeah, it, it is an old school MLS signing, but I will say like, I don't know if you could resist it really. Like this isn't someone who was kind of like a, an okay or a good player in, in a top division. He was like a top five player in the world for a time. Um, arguably, arguably at least for, for me, the, the, obvious question mark is his injury and how much he's got over that you know as much as he claims to be um, basically invincible I, I think that'll probably take yeah. it exactly <laughs> I think that'll probably take its toll on anyone his age so I, I kind of get a little bit of a, a Didier Drogba in Montreal feeling like I think he might score a lot of goals and be a little bit of a liability at everything <laughs> else um, but yeah as I say I don't blame them at all for rolling the dice. And they have Ola Kamara as a kind of very good uh, backup option. So they've insured themselves a little bit. Yeah, as someone who used to have a man bun and is a big Zlatan fan, um, I don't don't think it mattered. I was just excited about this signing purely. Um, Let's move on to a competition um, where Zlatan has played for a, a number of these teams, that being the the UEFA Champions League. Um, obviously, I touched on some of this with Josh Cloak earlier, so we won't go too far into this, but the games are coming up. Uh, let's start with the April 3rd Sevilla-Bayern Munich. Now, in talking to Josh, um, he was maybe a little bit irrationally worried about this game considering Bayern's success in Spain or lack thereof. But um, do you see, you know, the Sevilla team posing any real problems for a Bayern side that um, have looked incredibly good domestically so far this year? Um, no, I think Josh is hedging his bets. They'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, they won something like 23 out of their first 24 games um, once your Pine Keys return. Like, the guy has figured it out something with Bayern. I don't know what it is. Um, I don't know if they'll go all the way and win it this year. I think they definitely have a chance, but... I wouldn't call them favourites, but Sevilla, I think they'll take care of that. Um, they'll do enough in the home leg to to get through as long as they avoid disaster in Spain. Fair enough. And and the repeat of last year's final, of course, that happening the same day, Juventus against Real Madrid. Now, Cristiano Ronaldo's been on an absolute tear since the calendar turned to 2018. Um, really, for me, I think he's the difference in this tie. This, these are two clubs that, uh, I mean, Juventus always has a great domestic season in the Serie A, but they haven't necessarily impressed in Champions League so far. And uh, Real Madrid haven't been great domestically until recently, where Ronaldo's, you know, kind of, you know, destroyed La Liga. So uh, I almost wonder if, if that's going to be the same thing that happens in this tie. Yeah, I. I struggled to see past Real Madrid with this one again. Um, Juventus, like, they always have that ability to to defend very well and and frustrate you and, you know, pounce when they do get just one or two opportunities, as we saw against Tottenham. But I I think in these games, Real Madrid know their way around them as well as Juventus do, and so their superior quality um, should tell, I think. I, I kind of feel like with Juventus maybe their chance with this core is, is just gone now um, you know there's no doubt that Chiellini is, and Buffon and so on are, are still top players but they are a year older and again like with Zlatan they're, they're not invincible as much as they are legends of the game and 
I, I think probably last year was was their big chance, and I, I don't really see the tables having turned anywhere but Madrid's direction, despite their their difficult league season. They're a different team in the Champions League. And moving on to the next day, April fourth. Um, for me, this is really the the best matchup of the of the tie. Now I know fans of both teams won't necessarily be overly happy that they're playing each other, but. Considering the way things went earlier in the year in the Premier League, Liverpool versus Manchester City is, you know, an incredible tie, really. Um, what are the keys for Liverpool to, to repeat what they did to City um, in the Premier League? And do you see that as, you know, as possible or plausible more so? Yeah, it is. I, I think this is, like... I wouldn't say it's the worst tie that Manchester City could have drawn, but it's up there. Like I, Liverpool, I think, will worry them a little bit. And when Liverpool get it right at home and, and really play the way Klopp likes them to play, they can beat anyone. Uh, and I don't think anyone would have wanted to draw them. So I'm really excited about this one. I, I think it's been you know so many years now that English teams have just been on a decline in Europe ever since um, you know Manchester United and to a lesser extent Chelsea won. Uh, you know. What, 10 or so years ago now um, and we've not really had a tie like this that's been like a top English team against the top English team and, and both you know maybe it's an outside chance for Liverpool but both have kind of have a chance of winning the competition um, you know I remember back to, to Liverpool Chelsea and, and those quarter final and semi final ties that we used to have you know a decade ago they were really enthralling matchups and uh, I, I hope this will be kind of the same I think Liverpool only have one way of playing when they're at their best, and that's you know full throttle, and and hopefully that will mean that we get a really exciting game rather than the kind of you know uh, very cautious slow uh, tie that can be typical of, the, of this stage of the competition. Yeah, absolutely. I'm definitely put me down in the camp that's hoping this tie will live up to to its potential because it does have a lot of that considering Liverpool's attacking ability and you know what Manchester City have obviously shown and how much this will mean to them uh, in terms of of the lack well of of the struggles they've had in the Champions League and wanting to to with this current core be able to do that in this competition now there is one last one and evidently that's Barcelona against Roma Um, in in terms of if, if I were a betting man this would be probably the easiest one to pick I think um, is there any way you see Roma getting past a, a Barcelona team that just seemed to be able to win this year yeah I, I don't think so um, I think Barcelona are kind of they're not you know I think I said this last time I don't think that they're the Barcelona of you know Guardiola's peak or anything like that despite the fact that their record is, is very very good this year but I think you know no one has really been able to outplay them yet and we'll see if someone like Manchester City could do that later in this competition or if Real Madrid get back to where they were last year or Bayern Munich but I think they've been able to to win a lot of games just by being very secure and, and structured and and you know making sure that defensively they're good and then they just let Leo Messi do his work um, and I think that'll be enough for, for them to get past Roma. So definitely a lot to watch in the next couple of weeks in terms of soccer, both domestically and internationally. But before we finish the show, we will wrap up with our crazy soccer story of the week. And this week it comes out of Argentina where things took a rough turn for an Argentine striker. Uh, Carlos Tevez, he hasn't been having a great year um, in terms of, you know, he went to China, tried to have some success there as a lot of players have been doing lately. Didn't work out for him. Uh, he has since moved back to Boca Juniors, and this week he decided to visit his brother in prison, who has been serving a 16-year sentence for armed robbery. And not only that, he decided to play some prison yard soccer while he was there, and ended up tearing his calf muscle, um, and could be out for a month. Now I can't imagine Boca Juniors being overly happy about this. Who knows if it was a longest yard situation or if. You know, if somebody just clotheslined him, or if this was a legitimately explainable injury, but um, that doesn't seem like a great position to put yourself in. Now, Ollie, do you have any uh, memorable stories yourself about um, about soccer injuries in in the soccer world and this crazy uh, this crazy game that we watch? 
Um, yeah, there's no shortage of them, really. Um, there's probably, you know, there's remarkably a remarkable amount of footballers doing stupid things down the years and in, in an attempt to self-medicate. Uh, the, my favourite one has to be Darius Vassell, who some people may have heard of, some probably won't have. He used to play for Aston Villa and Blackburn. I think he even got an England cap or two. Um, he once had some kind of blood blister, I think, on his foot. Um, and it was, I think it was under a toenail or something like that. Apologies for this image, but it's about to get worse. <laughs> um, and he decided to use an electric drill <sighs> uh, <laughs> in, in an attempt to treat the problem himself. Uh, and it did not go well. So that, that one is probably top of the list of footballers doing dumb things uh, instead of going to see the professional medical staff that is out there beck and call 24-7. Now, was he able to get a Home Depot um, advertisement <laughs> deal out of this, do you think? Well, if he wasn't, it was a missed opportunity. Yeah. So I hope so. Absolutely. I, I don't even think they have Home Depot over there. You could speak to that better than... You know, the, yeah. the equivalent. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. The, the idea is that, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, thanks for thanks for joining me again, Ollie. Um you know, busy couple weeks for, for Toronto FC. So what can people expect from the TFC report over the next few weeks? Uh, yeah, we'll have, well, today, obviously, I had a, an interview with Bill Manning, um, who, if you don't know, was the president of Rail Salt Lake before getting to Toronto. So we had a, a pretty good chat about, um, you know, his time there and, and how it's influenced TFC. Uh, and then we're straight back into the Champions League. So looking forward to that with the home leg at, at BMO Field on Tuesday night. Absolutely, I'll be at both of those games and expect uh, recaps here on the Footy Talks podcast. Um, thanks everyone for listening, of course. Uh, if you want to continue this conversation and interact with some of the best reporters in Canadian soccer circles, make sure to check out Footy Talks 5. That's going to take place May 3rd at the Rivoli at 7pm. And as always, you can get your tickets at homestandsports.ca. I'm Mitchell Tierney. This has been the Footy Talks Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.